All right. Hello and welcome to season two of Mouthwash. Fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. Monday to Friday with me, Paul Armstrong, creator of TBD Conference. Uh, interviewing uh, powerful people is easy, but that's not the mouthwash way. Uh, and we're doing things differently in season two, exploring less obvious elements of power this season. What's driving the world? What's hard power? What's soft power during a pandemic? Who's got power? Who wants it? How to get it? And a lot more besides. It's going to be an amazing season. And we've had three episodes already. Uh, joining me every episode is a smart cookie of my choosing and tonight's cookie is one of the foremost uh, experts in everything internet uh, he's working for amazing company republic which we'll learn about a little bit more but uh, before we get going uh, welcome to the show chris messina how are you doing hey paul i'm doing well thanks Excellent, excellent. Before you and I chat, Chris, let's talk a bit about where we are and how you guys can get involved who are listening. Twitter Spaces is still a beta product from Twitter, um, so let's explore it a bit. Um, on the mobile app, the top bit is called The Nest. That's where you can see the bit about the lo-fi music and everything like that. Uh, that's where uh, Chris and I can put any uh, tweet up that we find uh, on the internet and talk about it. Mouthwash uses this to discuss uh, tweets in a section called Desert Island Tweets. Uh, you can click through, follow accounts, links, etc. It's pretty handy and a unique feature to Twitter Spaces. So if you want to leave a question for Chris or myself, just click the blue math, mouthwash show hashtag at the top, and you can click through, write a tweet, and Bob's your uncle, you will get to leave me a question. I'll check them throughout the show. Um, you can see all your faces and speakers are at the top. Uh, spaces allow 11 speakers at a time, including the host. So you can have really good chat, multiple voices, but it's not a massive free-for-all, and it's not a nightmare to listen to for anyone. You can request the mic at any time, uh, in any space you're in by the bottom left. Um, it's the mic and it'll go purple when you actually have the power to speak. Um, but Mouthwash is more of a show format. So we take questions, as I said, before, uh, via the hashtag. Um, so again, click it at the top title, save your fingers some tapping. Um, Twitter's also recently introduced a slew of monetization features. So you know they're serious about spaces. So definitely look into it uh, if you're interested in that as well. If you look at the bottom right of your phone screens, you'll see some dots, uh, some icons rather, some dots, people, heart, etc. Um, the dots are where all the settings are. So if you want to turn on captions or other accessibility features and you need that that's all in there really upfront and good glad that twitter made that a priority um but do me all a favor uh while you're here tweet out the space so if you click on the icon on the right the staple with an up arrow um you'll let the world know that you found something great for every person you get into the space a tree is actually going to be planted courtesy of the smart cookie uh, people at ecology who make offsetting carbon footprints super easy um you can find out more about them over at ecology.com that's e-c-o-l-o-g-i.com um and whether that's for personal or business elliot and the team over there are great partners and they work with uh, myself and TBD for many years now and I'm super proud to have them on board. Um, thanks also to Shell for sponsoring the show. Shell's recently published a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner. They'll keep in step with society. Find out how Shell is powering progress over at shell.com forward slash powering progress. Okay, that's the plugs. That's everything. Uh, time to shower Chris in emojis. Okay, so if you click the heart down the bottom with a plus, and if you start showering Chris uh, while I uh, introduce him, please don't stop until the end. If you are ready, go. I'm going to show 100% so that I'm ready. Um, so, yeah, so ready, set, go. Use the emojis. 
Chris Reeves Messina, uh, head of West Coast Business Development for Republic, a private investing firm that's doing investing differently. Chris knows good products when he sees them. He should do too. After all, he's hunted about 3,000 of them for um, Product Hunt. It's That's what's called the must-read site in Silicon Valley for new products and services. Uh, not everyone knows them, so we're going to talk a bit more about those later. But previously, Chris worked for Google and Uber. Chris knows what good experiences look and feel like. It was in 2007 that Chris invented the humble hashtag that's now used by billions of people every day currently calling himself a product therapist which i love uh, he is based in oakland california uh, chris helps startups and lots of other people figure out what they're doing uh, and he's a very very smart cookie chris thanks for joining us how are you doing on this very very important evening for british people i think uh, less so for americans but you know still important times <laughs> over there i'm no doubt <laughs> No doubt. Uh, I'm doing great. Um, and that was an amazing introduction, I got to say. That's the most thorough Twitter Spaces intro I think I've ever heard. So uh, I'll that. take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, what have we done now? I've done 20, 23 of these now. So yeah, by wow. the end of this season, we'll have done 40 interviews. It's crazy. But it's going really well. So I'm loving doing the Spaces, amazing. meeting all the creators and everything like that. It's all, it's all really good. So yeah. Um, Chris, I always ask the um, first question to every guest. What was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? Oh, God. Um, it was reviewing this crazy dream I had, uh, and I don't know, I have very visual dreams. And in this dream, several things happened. One that I remember was I was walking through this kind of, it was like this mossy dirt loam kind of stuff. And there were all these aphids on my feet. I don't know. That's, that's what I thought about. Sorry. Oh, and are you big into the dreams? Do you like look into what the meaning of aphids on your feet mean? Or are you just like, no, it's all right. <laughs> you know, I... I tend to be somewhat, you know, introspective. Um, I'm always curious about why I do the things I do and what shaped me and causes me to think the way I do. And so in this case, I feel like for the last, I gotta say three or four weeks, I've almost been like reviewing all this like deeper, I don't know, like trauma earlier in my life, like all the ways in which I felt kind of um, othered or kind of cast out of, um, you know, high school and middle school and, and stuff like that. I don't know why, but that's that's what's going on. And so in this dream, it was very much this, I'm, I don't belong here. And um, I, I don't know what the aphids represent, though. Sorry. No, that's that was a very introspective answer and one I was not expecting, so that, that's fine. Um, I was going to delve in and just ask about how the last 12 months have been for you, but let's hold on that, because you mentioned curiosity, and that's yeah. one thing that I've noticed. When I was reading all of your um, information across many sites, obviously you've been interviewed by thousands of people about the hashtag and that sort of thing. Mm. But one thing that I really really struck me across your whole career is your 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 um, lust for the new, the the next, and the sort of forward, if that makes sense. Where's yeah. that relentless curiosity? Where did that come from? Um, you know, I think the the best way to under, I guess understand me is to understand my desire to understand things that are happening and to put them all into context and see how they relate and connect. And uh, on the one hand, maybe it's a way of empowering myself or, or you know, here, here's, here's an example. Maybe um, I remember growing up, you know, my parents, obviously not like, no, sorry. Now I'm like having a thought about that and how I had this weird impression from, from their interactions and their experiences. But one thing that I do remember was their, they had a very different relationship to technology and their kind of desire to have less of it in their lives maybe caused me to go the other way, to run towards it, to want to understand it, to dismantle this thing that caused this fear in them. Um, and to then 
uh, like in a weird way, I don't know, like protect them or, or something, or, or I don't know. I know this is like going to get deep super fast, but that's how this happens for me. I want to understand something. I see something happening. I see behavior. I, I don't understand. And I start asking a lot of questions. I remember I was probably one of those kids that would just ask and ask and ask and everyone would get annoyed. And uh, eventually I had to keep it to myself. Um, and I suppose I've gone in the direction of, of tech and design and, social um, behavior and all that stuff because it allowed me to pursue those questions that I had in a context where those questions were welcomed and where people were like, yeah, actually keep going, like figure it out and let's build products and let's serve those audiences. Whereas I think, um, yeah, where I came from asking those kind of questions um, just annoyed people and frustrated them. God, I wish more people were open to saying like, yes, ask more questions and that sort of thing. <laughs> like, when I sit, when I work with clients and sort of uh, speak with other people and that sort of stuff, they often, they, they sort of have a finite amount of like, okay, you've asked enough, you know, that sort of thing. But it's, yeah. uh, it's those people who go like, no, no, keep going. Like, you know, look for the different, find the, find the new and sort of see what the differences are and that sort of stuff. Th- those, I think, are the questions that we should be asking more in the world and that sort of thing. Um, you are the dad of the hashtag, I think it's fair to say. I would be remiss if I didn't say, please tell us about how you thought of it and what happened after the faithful tweet, because it wasn't an instant internal success, right? No. No, and, you know, it's, I think it's important. Um, I like telling the story, and I don't get tired of telling the story, because there's so many things to learn and to unpack and to put into context. You know, like you asked my, my like, why am I curious and, and stuff like that? I am in this weird place, a place I never sort of thought I'd be or anticipated and having contributed to the canon of social media and social technology and social behavior. And so I can look back, like, I mean, it was a little while ago now, it was almost 15 years ago, but I can say, what was going on? Why did I do it this way? Why did this happen? And what are the consequences? And when something that you design into technology becomes widespread, what are the results? And does it necessarily result in positive outcomes or negative outcomes? And what are the things that you have control over in the beginning that can then inform um, or perhaps, you know, control um, or guide the outcomes later on? So when it comes to the the humble hashtag, you know, I I think of myself somewhat as a technologist, but I'm not a developer. I've, you know, dabbled in code, but I had a lot of technical friends who were far more gifted at you know programming and talking to computers natively in their own language and making them do things. And so when I came up with the idea for the hashtag, I was, I don't know, largely kind of going through my own imposter syndrome. I was a, I was a designer, yes, um, uh, a product designer, I suppose, but I was working with a lot of technical people and I kind of had to stay on the outskirts of a lot of their deep conversation. So coming up with the idea for the hashtag was almost embarrassing. It was like so stupid and so simple. And I suppose I hold on to that even to this day, even though I can now look back and see that it was an elegant way to address a number of concerns and problems and limitations of the technology at the time. But what I was ultimately trying to do, just as I said before, like, you know, the dream and think about my parents and technology and kind of demystifying it was I was trying to find a way to make social technology more accessible to more people, given the limitations of the media at the time. And the media at the time, in that moment, 2006, 2007, was SMS, text messaging. 
And so back then, what I think a lot of people who have joined Twitter more recently or just use it on the day-to-day now don't really understand how it worked back then. And the way that it worked back then was that if you followed someone, every single one of their tweets would be sent to your phone as a SMS. There were no push notifications back then. Like that, It was the first mobile social network in that sense, but it was also very noisy. And so mm-hmm. I was looking for a way to let's say, subscribe to a subset of, you know, Paul's tweets and not get everything that you tweet about. Um, And the question was, how do you do that in text itself? And not only just text, but within 140 characters. So an SMS can be 160 characters, Twitter reserved 20 characters for the username and other commands. And then you had 140 characters for the message itself. So within that 140 characters, you have your message, but then you also have to have the metadata that describes or defines what your tweet is about. Mm-hmm. And given that limitation, it was like, well, what do we do? How do we solve this problem? And um, I was also active in the, the predecessor to Slack called IRC. And in IRC, there were channels. So you'd go to a channel and you'd talk about the thing that you're interested in. Um, and it was contextual, it was topical. Um, and they actually used the pound symbol to identify a channel relative to anything else. And so I was like, well, what if we just embed the name of the channel in the tweet itself, and then the system could uh, see that word or a phrase, and then could create a, essentially a feed or a place where you can go and follow just all the tweets that have those words or that phrase in it um, with a prefix of the pound symbol. And that's more or less what I wrote up as my proposal, um, which was actually a you know, 1500 word blog post. Um, and then I, of course, tweeted the idea, uh, you know, which, of course, back then it was like going out to another 3,000 people or something. You're like, hey, what do you guys think about using the pound symbol for groups? And um, I kind of got a mediocre response. People were like, yeah, OK, whatever, <laughs> you know, and it's like, go convince the world of this idea. And it's like, oh, how do you do that? And, um, you know, honestly, at the time, Twitter was. It was gaining a lot of popularity, but there weren't a lot of cloud services. So its servers were like always on fire and the service was going down and there was something called the fail whale and there were law cats and it was a mess. But there were a lot of third party developers, independent developers that were building apps for Twitter. And I knew a lot of them or was friends with them or, you know, again, was just excited about being involved in that world and started to try to be helpful to them and um, reached out to several and told them about this idea that I had and slowly started to convince them that this was a good idea. And then in October of 2007, about a couple months after I'd written a proposal, um, a friend of mine was down in San Diego in California and he was tweeting about um, these wildfires that of course had become, you know, seasonal and now happen with ever greater vigor every year. Um, And he was using Twitter to share this news um you know one of the first examples of citizen journalism on social media and um he was prefixing all of his tweets with sand space diego space fire colon you know to give people context and then his message and i was like hey why don't you just use a hashtag for that and um and he did and that became it was covered in wired and other tech outlets and that sort of became um the first real solid use case besides myself where someone was doing this thing and then other people started to imitate that behavior, even though they didn't really understand what it meant or why to do it. But because Nate was doing it, other people picked it up and slowly, so very slowly, it gathered steam over years. 
Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a viral overnight success, was it? It didn't <laughs> take sort of years to sort of take on. But I remember well, it almost looked like, like a typo, right? Like exactly. back then there weren't links. Like if if I tweet something with a prefix of, you know, I don't know, the uh the percent sign, it doesn't turn into something or like yeah. the carrot or the ampersand, you know. Yes, if I tweet something with a dollar sign in front, that might be a, a stock ticker or, you know, a, a crypto coin. But in that case, putting a, a pound symbol in front of a word or a phrase didn't actually turn it into a, a clickable link. So yeah, it, 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 it was not an overnight success. <laughs> um, it must be humbling to um, see other platforms like Facebook, LinkedIn, snatch your idea, right? 85% of the top 50 most traffic sites in the world now use some form of hashtag. Bearing in mind where we were in 2007, where we are now, how do you think yeah. the hashtag is going to evolve? Do you think we're going to have other things that are taken on or do you think nope hashtags enough it's simple and it's beautiful we shouldn't mess with it you know i think it's i do think that it's going to persist um for for a couple reasons um well even twitter now is you know doing their own thing with topics um, which are inferred um through a number of different signals and they're using ai and machine machine learning to figure that stuff out um there is still a generative aspect of hashtags that I don't think any computer system that is trained on prior information and prior text um, will be able to compete with. In other words, when you create a brand new hashtag that's never been used before, that allows people to then signal uh, an intent, a signal that is stronger than anything that is done retrospectively. In other words, for example, today I saw that Twitter Blue, the Twitter Blue account, for mm-hmm. Twitter Premium um, is soliciting feedback using the hashtag Twitter Blue feedback hashtag. And it's an example where no amount of machine learning is going to get you to that outcome. Instead, mm-hmm. it, it allows for human creativity, human coordination, the ability for people to spontaneously decide on a new topic that needs to be discussed, and for there to be a kind of decay, a kind of, um, you know, while it's useful, it's useful. And then if it goes away, it goes away. You got to think or remember that in some ways the hashtag was intended and designed to replace domain names. Domain names is a centralized um, system of addressing that requires a central authority to maintain an index of all of the known domain names and then to point them at different servers that have you know, the information you're seeking or looking for. Whereas a hashtag is sort of like a, I don't know, it's like a, a verbal address. I think of it like the bat symbol, sort of you, you put it up and while you need Batman, you know, Batman comes and then you turn it off when you don't need it anymore. Um, whereas to spin up a website with a domain, you have to like pay for it. You have to register it. You've got to like propagate that. Um, you've got to do a bunch of stuff to basically maintain that infrastructure. And the whole idea of the hashtag was that it was spontaneous. It was generative. Um, and you didn't have to get permission from anyone to use it. And that was the whole idea. So in that sense, I think it will persist. Um, and the fact that you can use it anywhere you can type text is part of its durability. Mm. So unless you suppress speech um, or you filter you know, tweets or content um, on any social platform that have certain keywords, I think it'll continue to e- adapt and evolve so long as humans are using text to communicate. Mm. I've been surprised that more companies aren't doing in the in the early days of Twitter when I was um, clogging up the pipes with you know live um, you know spin the wheel and you win a prize and that sort of stuff right, right. using hashtags. Um, I, I've been surprised that more people aren't using hashtags for real world 
you know actions and that sort of thing voting on things and all of that sort of stuff we sort of went through it now we haven't twitter's sort of using different sort of cards leaving twitter alone for one side do you think other platforms could take hashtags easily and evolve them or you think no they're, they're pretty sort of standardized now i guess it depends on what you mean by evolve um you know the one i don't know if i'd call it a significant proposal or threat or abuse um was actually when i was at google working on google plus um, mm. There, there were some very aggressive engineers that wanted to. Well, one, they thought, you know, as I'd experienced previously, that hashtags were stupid. Fine, you know, engineers can think whatever they want, um, and they wanted to change the way that they looked and behaved on Google Plus because if you know Google didn't invent it, then they had to invent something worse. Um, and <laughs> essentially, they wanted to make it possible to have better looking hashtags where if you start a phrase or you know, a sentence or something with a pound symbol, then you can add another pound symbol at the end of that phrase. And so you can have spaces. So the hashtag is more readable. Now, I, I, like, I understand on the one hand, the intent, but you're actually undermining the entire purpose, which is when I was working on this, I was trying to decentralize social networks. I was trying to make it possible for you know, a Twitter user to follow a Facebook user and then to be able to connect across the networks. And mm. you know, we find ourselves in the opposite end of that now with you know, monopoly conversations going on. But the idea was for hashtags to be cross-platform. If I use a hashtag in one context and I cross-post to someplace else, the hashtag maintains its integrity. Or if I'm a brand or a company or a movement, then I use one hashtag in my billboard or on TV or wherever else, and it's the same hashtag everywhere. It's a token. Mm. Um, as opposed to what, again, Google was thinking was like, oh, we'll expand the format and make it more legible, and we'll put spaces in there, which of course would have broken that cross-platform compatibility. So I fought hard uh, against that. Fortunately, I won, but um, there have been, you know, initiatives like that in the past that have tried to, I don't know, change or modify their use. And I just, I, I'm solving for a different set of problems that maybe people aren't really thinking about, but its simplicity is what allows it to be adopted by people who are not even that tech savvy. People who, mm -hmm. again, don't quite know what a hashtag is or why it's useful, but it becomes mimetic in its form. You know, just like the ad symbol for mentioning people, you know, people will do it just because, you know, they see other people doing it and they kind of eventually um, get it. You know, I've been, I've been pretty impressed by the way in which like TikTok has uh, adapted and used hashtags like quite a lot um, for a platform that is entirely built on AI and machine learning and personalization. Um, hashtags are still very relevant, even for people to just express that this is about something or there is this brand sponsored initiative or something and they say i'm going to label it with you know with that even though the content you know if you were to use machine learning to identify what's inside the content actually is entirely different um than that hashtag might have you think mm. you've um now got your own, sorry sticking with hashtags a little bit more moving <laughs> on um you've got your own cryptocurrency coin the hash coin um the creator or social coin uh, that people can buy etc um talk to us a bit about where the coin movement's going is this uh, is this the ultimate movement people investing in literal money in a thing or a person or is it just a fad that people are sort of um, you know i've got a coin you can invest. Mm -hmm. You're doing it quite interestingly where you add, you know, you're giving back to the world and that's the thing. But a lot of people aren't doing that. Sure. I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, uh, with the hash coin, what I'm really trying to do is to learn. 
you know, I, I think I've been seeing this massive shift, um, largely, I think, since the pandemic, but a little bit before then, of people learning how to monetize um, mm-hmm. social media and social platforms. You know, this, I think, in some ways stems from the exploitation that has occurred um, of people who produce content on social media and big platforms are making millions of dollars. And the people who, you know, are the most creative get a very small pittance of that. You know, this started all the way back with Jack Conti and Patreon, you know, Mm -hmm. where he had millions of views of this music video that he produced and made a couple thousand bucks, whereas YouTube made lots more on the advertising (laughs) that was placed on the real estate that he had essentially created. Um, And so there's a push against that type of, you know, crowdsourced exploitation of labor. It's funny. Two, two thoughts on this. One is last night I was going through Google Drive because apparently I'm running out of space. I know I got 200 gigs of BS in there, but uh, <laughs> I came across this piece um, that a friend of mine had written in 2014 talking about how the internet had failed artists. And um, his name is Mike Duca, and he started this platform called Neon Mom. And I had consulted with them for a little while and worked um, you know, for them after I left Google back in 2013. And it was sort of a pre-NFT, artificial scarcity, digital trading card platform. And what was so interesting is the way in which he was talking about how crowdsourced labor on social media platforms was this type of abuse. Um, And we just didn't see it that way until now we see how much money these platforms have made for themselves. And there's not that much left over for the creators. So the creator coin concept has several problems, but several things that's going forward as well. And one is that if you're able to establish a kind of, I would say, pro-social and positive relationship with your fans, with the people that want you to keep doing whatever it is that you're doing and either giving away for free or somewhat for free on the internet, then they want to continue to nourish and support you. And if, as I came to understand Money is more like calories than it is this kind of dark, evil force. And it took me a long time to repair my relationship with the concept of money. Then you start to understand that circulation of money, of currency, of calories is necessary for growth, for health, for people to keep doing the things that we love and want them to do, to really support and sponsor creativity at scale. So the creator coin thing is a way of actually getting in between or owning the relationship between yourself and the people that want to support you by creating a kind of loyalty program. You know, I think of the the hash coin as kind of like a airline miles program where, you know, you, you, you buy some coin, you hold it, you know, maybe it has, you know, some value to you. You can exchange it with other people who also own that coin. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been working with actually uh, Christopher is in the audience today um, to find ways of um, rewarding people who provide good product feedback to his app, which is called Twirl, uh, who provide good feedback to get some of that hash coin. And then they can actually transfer it within themselves and it creates a kind of local small economy. Um, And I think that's super interesting because it, unlike likes or follows or retweets, you know, which might happen from lots of people who don't know you, maybe your tweet goes viral, you get, you know, 500 retweets or something, you have no relationship with any of those folks. Mm. But if some of them end up buying your coin, then that creates a kind of, I don't know, like a super like, a super follow that says, hey, not only do I like that that you did, but I'm going to own some of your currency so I can watch you over time. Because now we have a shared mutual interest that as, you know, your star grows and your influence 
blossoms, then I'm, I will have um, an upside in that, um, in, in that success. And I think that's aligning incentives in a way that the current kind of, you know, dunking that goes on in Twitter um, is, it's antisocial because there's no consequence of being negative in the environment or in the economies, right? So it's not ecological. Whereas the coin creates a kind of social ecology that I think is worth exploring and experimenting with. The other thing that I wanted to say about this, I had this thought this morning. Oh, that's right. So I was thinking about um, when the first, I know this is like a fraught conversation, but let's just go with it. Like if we think about the history of exploration, let's say, of, of discovering new, let's say, unexplored territory, hopefully where there's not a native population per se that gets wiped out by colonists. But um, if instead you just think about that idea where there's an original population that shows up in a new world and starts to, you know, create agriculture or plow fields or create, you know, roads or infrastructure or whatever it is, um, it's oftentimes being done without any real remuneration at the time. You know, it's sort of like we're building our first little outpost or a little town and we're going to create this colony that essentially grows and establishes itself in some norms and then um, flourishes from there, presuming it does flourish. Um, it's people that generations after that first generation that are the ones that figure out commerce and charging and money. So I was thinking about this as this applies to us, like uh, one of the first generations on social media. We did so much of what we did for free and we gave away so much of the stuff that we were you know, doing. Because, well, one, because there wasn't necessarily a market for it. And two, because we were building the underlying kind of basic, you know, streets and roads and, you know, mapping out the territory. And now there's a generation that grows up where all of that territory has been mapped. And a lot of those, a lot of that infrastructure, the town square, et cetera, has been established. And now they're able to engage in a different kind of commerce that just didn't make sense when we were getting started. So I guess I bring this up because I previously had a little bit more reservations about commercialization of the social space, especially with creator coins or, you know, the creator economy and charging for everything and tipping and all this stuff. But I started to think, actually, this is more about the maturing of an economy. This is a natural cycle that, you know, civilization has gone through. And so maybe that's kind of, you know, we're just going through it rapidly and that's what's happening. Mm. That that takes us nicely onto Republic because you're doing um, sort of VC yes. in a different sort of way there. Um, crowdfunding VC, um, you've raised for people like SpaceX, Robin Hood, over 200 others. Um, you, you're you doing things very differently there. Tell us a bit about, it fits on nicely from what you've just spoken about, but tell us what yeah. you're doing for them and what, what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, so this is a new role. Um, I'm still sort of slowly seeding out the, the news about this, um, but I did join um, in the middle of June. So it's only been a couple of weeks so far. Um, and I'm heading up uh, business development on the West Coast for Republic. Um, you can find out more about Republic at republic.co. Um, they've been around since around 2016. And I've been in conversation with the team over there for quite some time. I believe I probably hunted them. Um, but what I think is, there, there are many things about both their model and about myself that came together to make joining right now make sense. Now, we just talked about a bunch of things about both the creator economy and about vaguely my relationship to money, which has evolved. Um, and in this case, what I think is so great about Republic is that it provides a way of aligning 
the incentives of a company, you know, which is to grow, to build a company or a product that people want with the actual customers of those products. So the way that conventional venture capital works, you know, and I've been out in Silicon Valley for 15 years now, is like essentially you have people, you know, with access to some money and they give portions of that money to a bunch of upstarts, you know, i.e. startups. I don't know why there's the difference between upstarts and startups, but regardless. And some of those bets that are placed will end up becoming hugely valuable and they'll pay for all the bets that didn't work. I actually learned today, there was a podcast I listened to about DARPA. Oh, it was on The Economist. And they were saying that there's a bunch of countries that are around the world that are trying to replicate the success of DARPA. DARPA, of course, produced things like the internet, the mouse, uh, Siri, stuff like that. And so DARPA basically removed a lot of the bureaucracy and the checks that uh, you would expect to be put on the expenditure of public money and said, look, we're just going to like make a bunch of bets and we're going to say, just go, just go build stuff and make stuff happen. And this happened in response to the Soviets getting into space with Sputnik. And so the U.S. never wanted to be behind again. And so said, we're going to just throw money at the problem and go, go make cool shit. So the whole Silicon Valley venture capital um, kind of concept about throwing a bunch of money around came out of the military industrial complex way back in the 60s. Anyways, we won't, we won't get too far into that. But point being, a lot of the spoils of those venture capital investments go back to the VCs, go back to the VCs, the investors, their limited partners who actually give them the initial money to put out. Um, and those come from very, very wealthy people. So it's a way of, you know, kind of, well, you know, if you have money, using money to grow more money. The problem, though, is that the middle class has been left out of that circumstance, that situation, that way of growing money, wealth, and largely it has to do with access. And so the rules and the laws changed back in 2016 after the housing crisis, the financial bubble burst, with the JOBS Act. And the JOBS Act changed what was required for people to be able to invest in startups and other risky type of investments. Risky meaning that they could either go to 100 or they could go to zero. And it was really hard to know which way they'd go in. And so prior to the JOBS Act in 2016, you had to have a million dollars or more basically to your name or to you and your partner's name or in your assets to be able to place these bets. Because the government doesn't want you to become insolvent because you place a bad bet and you lose all your money because some snake oil salesman says, this is the next great thing. This is the next great juicero or whatever. Um, and when you put all that money in, because you don't have a lot of extra money, you know, you essentially end up washed out and then you become um, dependent on the state to survive. Right. So it kind of actually, you know, makes sense why those rules were in place. However, it was far too restrictive. So the Jobs Act basically said, no, 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 look, let's open this up. You know, now we're in the age of the Internet. More people should be able to invest in startups and, you know, benefit from the growth that those startups experience. And if you have less than a million dollars, you can now invest in these exceptions that are under this um, regulation called Reg CF or crowdfunding, a crowdfunding regulation. That means that now you can invest in those companies. And that was up to, I believe, companies could raise up to a million dollars, which was okay. For some startups, that was, uh, you know, depending on how much they're raising, could be meaningful or could be kind of annoying. But what the what Republic does is it provides a platform that allows 
essentially, let's say, a thousand people to invest in your company up to a million dollars under a single line on your cap table, essentially your list of investors. So you can imagine that in a previous era, if you have to go to a thousand people to get the approval to, let's say, do your next fundraising round, um, that would be a lot of work. Well, Republic takes care of all of that under this new regulation. So now you have one line and it's very simple, very straightforward. Now you can raise money. The other thing that happened that changed just this year in March was that the cap of how much money a company could raise through crowdfunding jumped from $1 million to $5 million. So now we're talking about some meaningful money for businesses that want to raise from their customers and they want to engage or involve their customers in their future success. So now you can raise up to $5 million using this regulation. Um, and we just had a couple of success successes with this this year. Um, in particular, Gumroad raised $5 million on Republic um, as one of the first to take advantage of this new regulation. So I see all these things. And in terms of my own journey in demystifying and using technology to empower people, to include people, to participate in all these things that are happening out in the world, it just seemed like I'd gotten to the point where, you know, I, I'd done social media, I'd done open standards, I'd done product design, I'd done, I, I worked at Uber, so I worked on transportation. Um, money is the one thing that I really just hadn't gotten close to because I just felt like it was such a corrupting influence. And that's why so much of my career, I gave away so much of the stuff that I worked on for free because I just, I wanted to be pure in my intentions and why I did things. But again, I finally got to this point where I understood, no, no, money is actually a kind of a currency, a type of, um, you know, way of exchanging value. It's calories, it's sustenance, it's survival. And that is true for small businesses. So if you can align what businesses want to achieve as companies and they can talk to their customers, convince their customers that what they're doing is good and it's going to grow and the things that their customers love them for are things that other and new customers will want them for, then those customers should invest in those businesses mm. in order to support the success of those businesses. And so the alignment there just seemed like, okay, now I think I'm finally ready to like tell that story and to help more people participate in all the great things that have been coming out of, you know, not just Silicon Valley, but like the tech world for the last 10 to 15 years. No, I, I agree with you. I think it definitely fits your uh, hubris, your experience, and sort of your intent, if that or intentions, if that makes sense. When, when I read what it was and sort of delved into it, because I was like, oh God, what's this? Another like crowdfunding <laughs> thing and that sort of stuff. But actually the rigor that they're going through is, is pretty interesting, I think. I, I will say that too. Like one of the things that's very different about this that I learned um, that I think is really important as part of the story is exactly that. To go through the crowdfunding process because you're dealing with less sophisticated investors and people who have, you know, essentially more to lose if things don't work out, is that the regulatory scrutiny, the due diligence that's done to get on to specifically Republic to do the crowdfunding raise is intense. So you have to go through that gauntlet before you can do anything to solicit investment. And I think that's really, really important to understand and to learn about. It isn't that people shouldn't be doing their own research on companies and figuring out what's going on. But the people who already have, you know, tens of million dollars just to spend on their investments, they're already doing that research for themselves. And there's a bunch of, you know, consulting companies and all that stuff that happens on Wall Street that serves, services that marketplace. The mm. whole point about Reg CF and crowdfunding was saying, well, let's find a way of providing more transparency. So when people do take on some of these investments at lower levels, they're informed and they understand what they're actually getting into. 
And so that's mm-hmm. a big part of what Republic does and why I thought Rep- Republic was best aligned with both my values, my background, um, and the things that I think need to be out there in the world. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like it because it's um, leveling the playing field back in the yep. sort of the way that it feels like sadly we need a reset in some sort of um, ways i was going to ask you about whether we need to fix the vc boys club but i think you've sort of mentioned <laughs> that the republic sort of exists for that reason but i do still wonder if we are playing on a fair playing field um, anymore the big players seem to be sort of dominating more and more no fines currently being levied seem to be stopping bad behavior robin hood i'm looking at you um imagine if i handed you a magic wand today what two or three things in the tech or investing world would you fix to change the tech industry this is a really tough question um, because I, I don't think that there is a magic wand solution, unfortunately. And maybe this is influ- influenced by my own experience, but it feels like this is a, a cultural problem. This is a generational problem. You know, prior to the 70s and the Green Revolution, there really wasn't a sense that there was a need for recycling or for environmental stewardship. You know, the environment was just this thing that was around and took care of itself and no big deal. We could just, you know, rape and pillage and do whatever. And it was fine. And a generation or several generations came up that said, no, actually, like, we have to take care of this. Like, we have a material impact on the world. And it's our responsibility to be aware of that and to minimize our impact as much as possible. I feel like in a similar way, I I don't know that the way in which things are now could have gone any other way. You know, had there been more regulations or more controls or more stipulations on what these platforms couldn't couldn't do, I mean, in many ways, our laws are written retroactively. They look backwards and they say, what is the harm? What is the offense? What is the trauma? What is the thing that's occurred that we want to prevent going forward? And it feels like we're, we are, in some ways, at an inflection point, but we don't know exactly what we want the market dynamics to look like. We don't know exactly what the game is that we're trying to to design people to play should be in order to stay competitive and to continue to produce amazing and interesting products that people want to use. You know, I think the counterpoint or an alternative example of this is to look at what's literally going on in China right now, where very popular products and apps, in this case, Didi, which is their equivalent of Uber, has literally been removed from the app store. Um, Now, if you were to imagine a similar circumstance happening um, in the West, if Lyft and Uber were instantly removed from the app stores and they couldn't sign up any more customers, I guess the, the question that we'd have to answer is, is that a net positive? And do we trust our government with that level of decision making because of the power that those companies are accruing? Now, maybe what's going I don't know enough about it in the real sense in terms of either the politics or the controls or whether this is about protecting people um, and, and their, their privacy. But we don't really have that system in the West where we delegate or defer all of that to the government. The government is made up of people. And so we use the system where an open market kind of decides how things should go. And the fact that people continue to use these products, granted, maybe they're limited from accessing new or emerging upstarts, um, you know, makes you think, well, there could be a way better Facebook out there, a way better Instagram or a bunch of other competitors that don't exist. And yet all of those products have existed, but they haven't taken off uh, in the same way. Now you could say, well, again, they've starved the oxygen in the room, but this is where I don't really understand or know how to think about this um, 
maybe in a, in a constructive way where I could just like snap my fingers and say, oh, this will fix everything. Um, if people aren't choosing those products, when the, there's a free market in which you can introduce those products, is it the products? Is it the market? Is it the rules of engagement? Do we need to inhibit or hinder, um, I should in, inhibit um, the size? You know, is it the size that's the problem? Is it the behavior that's the problem? Should mm-hmm. companies not be able to compete? Um, or should we put them in potato sacks so that other people have a chance or a leg up? And mm-hmm. it's just not the way that the American enterprise system has been created. So I guess another part of the answer is to look more broadly and to look at ways in which people are building on Web3 technologies or the way in which crypto is establishing itself, um, the way in which the creator economy is growing. You know, like all of these big behemoths today that people are complaining about, there are companies that are, I want to say like five years ahead of them um, in terms of creating the next generation and the rest market, the next market. But because the reporters who are on these beats don't use those apps, they're not seeing the behavior. You know what I mean? Like there's this almost like um, omit, like there's an omission of coverage of the people that are actually building the next generation platforms and products because we're getting too old, those of us who, you know, cover or watch this stuff. And so we think there's not competition, but there is in the, you know, loam of the forest floor. There's little, you know, mushrooms, shoots popping up, little, you know, uh, saplings. Um, And so they're there, but we just, we're not looking at them in the right way. Yeah, no, it's the same with the femtech world as well. You know, there's a lot of um, male tech reporters that just don't cover it because it's uncomfortable to cover. Yeah. There's totally. so much stuff, it, which leads me up onto a thought I had. Something you've worked for um, Uber and Google companies yep. with questionable practices in the past, and to some extent right now. Um, how much do you think those in power are responsible for the way the ships sail? How much do the individuals who work at the places like Google have the power to change things and stop the bad behaviour before a government has to step in? Surely, the reason why they join these companies is to make a difference, to be part of something. If they're seeing that that isn't the case. How much it rests on their shoulders, do you think, to change it? Um, I don't want to be Pollyannish, um, but I think a question is like, what is the bad behavior? What type of remedies are you seeking? Um, and what are the consequences of addressing that bad behavior? Um, and so on the one hand, yes, obviously the buck stops with leadership. On the other hand, I, I continue to try to like game out and play out alternative scenarios where different things happen or there's different leaders in place. And I find it very, very hard to come up with alternative narratives or storylines that either are compelling or are likely, right? So when you talk about bad behavior, um, I think the question is, okay, let's talk about some specific examples. You know, like maybe you want to talk about the Facebook oversight board and what they're doing there. You know, if you look through some of those decisions that they're making, these are hard decisions. These are cultural decisions. These are things where there is no right or wrong answer. We're also talking about a world in which platforms like Twitter or Facebook or other social media um, platforms are gonna be kicked out of India, right? Where those executives could go to jail. We could have the same enforcement here and then those platforms may have to shut down. Is that a better world? Is that a worse world? I'm not really sure, but I think we have to really like be considerate and like think more deeply as opposed to just saying, oh, these companies are bad. Oh, these companies are exploiting our privacy, et cetera. Like, what do we actually want of them? What is the future that we want people to experience? 
And I don't know that we have that clear a vision because we're not asking all the right questions. We're not thinking about this in a broad enough way. You know, like mm -hmm. this is one of the problems that I experienced at Google. It was like people want privacy. They don't exactly know what privacy is, but they're like, I know it when I feel it. It's like pornography. I want yeah. it or I don't. Um, and then when it comes to them accessing the information of other people or interacting with other people, they want that, but they don't want the opposite. They don't want other people to have that power over them. So this two-sided, um, I don't know if it's an equation or just like a balance between those who have and don't is really, really hard to adjudicate in a way that I think is, is, is inclusive. So mm -hmm. I'm not at all letting these platforms, you know, off the hook. I think there's plenty of bad stuff that happens, but at the same time, I see individuals within these companies being empowered. You know, there's some folks from Twitter who are here in this space right now and are really being thoughtful and doing and engaging in a lot of open design um, to try yeah. to make the platforms better. You know, they yeah. are making decisions that will impact millions of people's, you know, experiences. And I feel like Twitter in particular has done a really good job of hiring a much more diverse set of people with different experiences that are or will impact the platform in material ways, in ways that sometimes I find bewildering, but also necessary. And then the question is, how do you explain or express or share the stories of people that are informing those designs so that more people understand that this is about making the whole of the system better for everyone that participates, not just a small number of people? Mm. I feel like Twitter's done the best job out there of staying true to their core. Obviously, people have attacked them left, right and centre. They've made mistakes. They've made wins and that sort of stuff. But they, they are fundamentally a, a place of honesty and truth and that sort of thing. There are lots of people and bad actors and that sort of stuff. But ultimately, they are trying to get people closer to their interests and sort of be more inclusive and diverse. And I think that's shown by the way that Twitter Spaces has been designed and grown and how they're open. And I definitely love that. The one thing I think about big tech in general is two things, actually. I think to, to see real change in it, someone's got to get whomped, right? Someone's got to have a big fat fine, broken up, smashed a bit, something something major so that everyone goes, oh, crikey, they actually do mean this sort of stuff rather than we'll just get a, a small fine that is like 1% of 1% of our quarterly earnings, you know? The second of all, I, I kind of think that um, it always reminds me when people tell me that, that bad things have happened in tech of um, the Eric Hoffer quote from um, The Temper of Our Time, which is an amazing book if um, you haven't read it um, out there. It's every great, uh, let, me, let me get it right. Um, every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business mm. and eventually degenerates into a racket. And I feel like that could be applied to most big tech out there at the moment. You know, they are sort of whomping the people. Uh, but, but I think, like, okay, let, let me just dive into that because that explains the exact problem, right? Which is what does success look like and who is the su success for? You know, it comes back to, in some ways, exactly what we were talking about with Republic. You know, I stayed outside of the conventional definition of success for a long time. And every time I sold out a little bit, I was aware of what I was compromising or giving up in order to have access to or close, closer proximity to a certain type of power, you know, which is, I know, one of the themes that you're talking about. But for a long time, I stayed in an sort of extra economic space, which was the world of open source. I gave away the hashtag, like I didn't patent it, whether you could have or not, that wasn't the point. It was like, I want more people to use this without coming back to me and getting permission from me. I didn't even want my name associated with the hashtag. The only reason why I came out as the inventor of the hashtag was because Twitter wanted to trademark it and prevent other platforms from using it. So I was outside of that world doing something quite different and the internet was quite pleased with 
that type of non-capitalistic behavior. But capitalism is a powerful, powerful force and it changes incentives. So things become a racket if you're in a capitalist system, but they also become a kleptocracy if you're in a socialist system. So everything devolves, everything, what is it called? Entropy, everything kind of falls apart and falls back together again. Everything is a massive inhalation and exhalation between different poles and different extremes. And that's what life is. And recognizing where you are in those cycles, I think is empowering because it helps you understand, okay, that's what's actually going on, going on here. Things could be massively different. We can feel very different about the social media that we're using. I think that we're not satisfied with the way social media is, but there's too many vested interests, literally vested, literally VCs who are invested in certain outcomes and certain advertising models being propagated into every new medium that exists that we can't get to a different outcome unless we change the economics of participation, unless we change the investment that individuals, the customers, the users of these platforms have in the way that these platforms perform. There was a great podcast that um, uh, Nilay Patel um, uh, at Reckless on Twitter did with, uh, on a book about Juul, Juul the vaping products. And it's, it's basically this amazing story of how Juul, this upstart that came out of Stanford, um, took over the, the, the smoking world and their, their goal, their original intention, as you said, was, was benevolent, was to defeat this addictive, destructive anti-health product with something that at least would remove the combustion part of smoking. So you get your nicotine, but it wouldn't um, you know, destroy your lungs. And Altria, formerly known as Philip Morris, which of course you know, made billions selling um, cancer sticks, essentially saw this and saw this disruption and ended up doing some investment to buy out 30% of Juul for $12 billion or some enormous amount of money. And from all, uh, I guess, evaluation of this deal, it's believed that it was a horrible, shitty deal for Altria. But because they were so worried about their future being usurped by this upstart, they felt like they had to do it. So on the one hand, I hear what you're talking about, but I don't know if a fine from the government for $12 billion, let's say, against a Facebook is going to result in the outcome that you want. Because what is Facebook going to do? They're going to keep behaving in the same way, even if you took away all their money. Like Zuckerberg turned down a billion dollar offer to be bought out by Yahoo back in whatever, 2004. Like he is building an empire. He is Caesar. So if you understand the way that he behaves in that way, then you understand why the money, although yes, there are a lot of people at Facebook and around Facebook that care about that, Zuckerberg is not going to be swayed by that. So I think you have to think more deeply about the culture that is around him, the people that he hires, and the culture that infect Facebook with a different set of values and norms. And that might be a way of actually causing change from the inside, if possible. If not from the outside, which is essentially finding the equivalent of Jewel to Altria, which is, you know, scaring them because the future behavior is migrating away from Facebook because it's no longer cool. Yeah, oh, there are two things there. Number one, I think Mark Zuckerberg being Caesar, I'd be worried if I was Mark Zuckerberg because that didn't end well for Caesar. <laughs> hey, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, but, you know. Hey, Sandberg's coming for him. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, but the second one I, I think of that is, um, yeah, the, the power that they have, it, it's like it's, there comes a time where it's like, you know, when people go, oh, people don't use it because it's cool. But actually the numbers don't ever ever support that it's always like more people are using it because it's a pervasive thing and that's the problem of it because of the social sign well it's, it's the network effects so unlike you know roads or trains or oil or things like that 
we're talking about social behavior. So we've never had, had a monopoly in the social era in the same way. Like at least, you know, back with phone companies, you had phone number portability. Okay, fine. I have a phone number. It's my property. I take it with me when I go from AT&T to Sprint to, to, to Google Fi, whatever, right? I don't lose contact with my friends. There is one of the bills going through Congress right now that is proposing to force network interoperability. But that flies in the face of or directly contradicts people's desire for privacy. So if I can pull your data out of Twitter, let's say, and put it into Getter or Gab or whatever the right wing media site that I use is, do I get to take all of your content with me? Like, is does your content then cross pollinate? So we have to be very careful about what we're asking for, what's, what we're thinking about when we come up with remedies for these ecosystems. And so, yeah, I, like wh while you're saying Facebook may not be cool, et cetera, I think you also have to look at like, like one, as I was saying, the, um, the network, what is it? I was just saying the word. Anyways, the network concentration part. And then the other is where growth is coming from. Like Facebook has an amazing playbook where they just go all over the world like a virus, you know, like the coronavirus, and they essentially infect people and they find more and more clever ways of adapting and breaking into people's behavior. And if they're the only game in town, then they, they essentially win, they take over. So trying to replace a Facebook is gonna be very, very hard. Regulating, you know, regulating might be something that we could do, but the question is, to what extent, how are we regulating it? Who benefits from those regulations? What does it mean to optimize for those new regulations? I mean, look at Google and SEO. You know, like the changes that Google has made over the years make it harder and harder for certain people to gain the system and exploit it and make it worse. Like there was a problem with tons of spam on Google not long ago, and there's still spam now, but Google has changed the algorithm and made it more subtle and there's more AI and personalization and all this stuff. And we take that for granted. Yeah. But the replacement, uh, you know, is going to suffer a lot of the same things that Google has fought against for most of its life. I just, I, I think we're not thinking about this in the way that these systems learn, adapt, change, um, and have to fight off infiltrators. Yeah, and also smashing something up means you lose the value, you know, half the time. You just don't want to lose that, do you? So possibly. It, it's, yeah, possibly, absolutely. You could often create some sort of X shoots and maybe Facebook would be better if it did smash it up because it can't change things internally when it's that big. I've heard I mean, that. Facebook has a bunch of apps, right? You could break off groups, you could break off events, you could break off live, you could break off... Um, you know, Instagram, uh, it gets a little more tricky with the whole end-to-end -end encryption piece with WhatsApp and Instagram. Yeah. Like, that is a masterstroke. I mean, Oh, they, they did of, that for the FTC, didn't they? Smash it all together. It's very hard to take apart. You can't do that. Of course. I mean, unless, unless you're okay with having, you know, some other company, you know, have access to your messages. The end-to-end yeah. end encryption thing is an amazing foil against um, breaking up these companies, or at least these messaging products. Absolutely. And that's where the, that's where the, the hook is the, the sort of the lifeblood of why people can't give them up, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm dangerously close to time. I'm going to run over, but I'm going to risk it if that's all right. Um, sure. I look down your LinkedIn, Chris, and I look on the web and I see enough experience for like two full careers already. Um, you and I have both just hit the big four O. What's left yeah. on your bucket list? <laughs> I know I'm old now. Um, oh, let's see. Well, I mean, obviously I've got this new gig. So... I, I feel like I'm at the beginning. I'm like a little baby, like learning about money for the first time and learning about what's good and what's bad and what's you know wrong with it. And I, I guess I come from a sense of my, like I feel deeply my ignorance. And that's a, a kind of pain 
um, maybe that I experience that I confront with curiosity. So I'm very much in a learning mode and I feel like this is going to last for a little while. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I love, you know, doing the things that I do and seeing all this stuff that's happening and following all the stuff that's emerging to try to get a sense for what's happening to us. How is technology changing us? How are we changing technology? What is that dialectic like? Is it healthy? Is it not working? Um, and what are the ways in which occasionally, like I can, you know, shove something, you know, in one direction or another, that's a little vague and abstract, but I do kind of think about, um, you know, I used to, um, I used to play baseball and I used to be a pitcher. And of course my curveball was never very good, but I'm very aware that depending on how you put your fingers on the seam of the ball, when you throw it, it can have lasting consequences in terms of the direction of that thing over time, space, and distance in the air. And so I'm thinking about that with, you know, maybe social audio, you know, maybe some of the things that Twitter's doing, like I'm constantly hitting up, I know some of the people who are here in this space get my feedback a lot, but I'm trying to just think about these things and understand where they're coming from and helping them to communicate what they're doing, but also saying, well, what about this? Or what about this other context? And I understand where you're coming from, but I've got 15 years of experience that, you know, I've seen a bunch of things. I've seen other apps that have tried stuff in terms of what you're doing. For example, um, it's really funny. There was a, one of the Twitter designers came out with this idea the other day about kind of creating facets on your Twitter account. So on Instagram, you have Insta or Finstas where you create multiple accounts and those are your facets. Essentially, there's one for mom and dad and your you know, school friends and there's one for your private internet friends and you have a bunch of them. And Instagram um, kind of embraced that and allowed you to quickly switch between accounts to have different privacy settings and different contexts in which you could behave in all these different identities. Well, Twitter doesn't really have that. They sort of built multiple account um, support for, I would say, marketers and for people who need to switch between work and personal, but not so much for the multiple facets of an individual you know, person. And so one of their, one of Twitter's designers put out this design that said, well, what if you had facets and you could kind of design these things in different ways so that they go to different audiences and different people who follow you could follow different parts of your profile. And this is sort of something similar to what I proposed before I proposed the hashtag, which is something that I called whispering tweets. Because again, like I said, back in 2006, when you tweeted, everyone would get notified. And sometimes you just want to have a stupid thought that no one you know, knows, but it goes in your profile, you know, sort of like Tumblr, it's a little personal expression. And I was like, well, if you put a, it's not the best symbol, but if you put an exclamation point at the beginning of your tweet, then maybe it doesn't get sent out to everyone and it can be just a sort of whispered tweet, like a shh kind of thing. Anyways, that was in 2006. And now someone at you know, Twitter is designing that 15 years later. And it's just like, okay, let's expand the aperture a little bit and think a little bit more about how this could be achieved and what the purpose is. And I don't know. So I guess I, I enjoy that. That doesn't exactly answer your question in terms of what's happening next. But I think the thing is money, more tech, product, design things, and then you know just continuing to explore, see what's out there, to continue to like evolve myself. Like I'm a product myself. And so I continue to like think about growth hacking myself and not like the biohacking way, but I don't know, just um, trying yeah, to be. Tim, Tim Ferriss yeah. has got a handle on that. Don't worry about that. He, he does. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that answer sums up pretty much uh, what I've learned from you uh, through this, but also researching beforehand for the show. And that's the thing is number one, I don't think you're going to be satisfied doing one thing for very long. <laughs> <laughs> I, this is one of my problems, um, as well as a superpower, is like, I'm just, I have to be consuming large amounts of information at all times. 
Like, yeah, I you definitely say tactic. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. Okay. Time for your desert island tweets. Um, part of mouthwash, <laughs> where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. Um, please turn your attention to the nest, the top of the bits at. Uh, I love that it's called the nest. I didn't know that it was called that. But like well, that. technically, I'm not sure if it is called the nest. I th- I'm I've heard it's called the nest. That's what I've been telling people. But there are other phrases for it. But I think the nest is. I like it. Um, Chris, tell us why you picked the Carl the Fog one. It's up the top. If you need to remind. <laughs> So, um, you know, I, I'm out here in the Bay Area. I'm in Oakland now, but I was in San Francisco for 15 years. Um, Carl the Fog is um, a very well-known staple of this place, this environment. Um, in some ways, I guess Carl the Fog actually retired in 2019, but I always enjoyed his, his account. There's now apparently a Carla the Fog that has taken over the mantle. So, you know, I, I appreciate that Fog has different gender expressions, depending on, you know, the era. Um, and I don't know, I'm friends with the, the guy that made the top nine app for Instagram. And I just thought the suite was like so good because one, it's very, I don't know, self-referential, but it's also self-expressive. And the fact that Carl the Fog has nine shades of gray um, that sort of represent the best of, of its year. I, I just, I, I appreciated that. And so if I'm on a desert island someplace and I'm hot and I'm, probably dehydrated and near death. I kind of want to imagine back and think about the cool, you know, sea breeze that Carl brings um, and how much I enjoyed my time in San Francisco. Oh, that's a nice one. I think that's a great sentiment to leave the conversation tonight. Yeah. Um, Chris, thank you so much for being a part of Mouthwash. Um, any final thoughts or advice for the listeners when it comes to power and movements? You know, the thing that I guess I, I, I take away and I want to like leave with people is the work of, of, of discovering yourself and learning about yourself and exploring who you are and what makes you you and all the things that happen, you know, that, that affects, um, you know, the surface area of, of your life and yourself and your mind, um, they all can have a profound impact. You know, the ways in which I was raised, the experiences I had growing up, they had a direct impact and consequence on what ended up becoming the hashtag and the hashtag ended up having an impact on the world. So, like I said, like, you know, the, the spin on, on the baseball of me in the early days, like had this huge, enormous outsized influence. Now, maybe if I have a, had a different, um, you know, origin story growing up, maybe if, um, for example, very briefly, I'll tell you a little bit about my problem with money. So my parents got divorced largely, I mean, for many reasons, but one of the big ones was, was because my mom was sort of a, she educated herself and, you know, got her, um, what's it called? Um, well, she studied psychology and like all this stuff, went through a lot of education. Meanwhile, my dad was the breadwinner. And when it came time to send me off to high school, my mom wanted me to go to a private high school. But my dad, having had six kids from a former marriage, was like, no, it's not worth it. I'm not going to spend the money. Whereas my mom had sort of been dependent on him to be financially willing to support, you know, whatever she wanted for her kids. And the fact that he didn't show up in that moment Lent, uh, you know, led her to basically say, well, you know, fuck this, like, what the hell? Like, you know, this isn't fair. This is what I wanted. I'm out. And so that led to their divorce. Now, I only discovered probably in the last year or so, you know, that that's where my distrust of money comes from. Like seeing that dissolution of their relationship as a result of um, abuse through money um, made me run away from it. And so coming into that knowledge and that awareness allowed me to go through a process of reforming that relationship. But I bring it up because had my mom succeeded, 
in putting me through a private high school where I was secluded and sequestered from, you know, the public high school experience that I had, I may not have done the same things or made the same decisions that led to me taking the approach that I took with the hashtag. So it just, to me, it's, it's profound to think about how these little small nudges early on in your life can end up having, you know, leading to enormous outcomes. Like maybe I would have ended up as, as Zuckerberg and maybe everyone would hate me right now. And who knows, that could have been the thing had I gone to a private university or, you know, private high school instead. And that's not what happened. So just, I don't know, that, that awareness of, of, of one story and the culture that you cultivate within yourself can actually have a profound impact on everything you do later on in a way that you just have no idea, you know, today when you're in the middle of it and you're like, ah, oh, this sucks. So, yeah. I think that's an amazing insight to leave people thinking, uh, certainly tonight in, in Britain, but all around the world and hopefully on the podcast as well. Um, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. Um, let us know how we did. Uh, use the hashtag mouthwash show. Click the blue link at the top and you'll, you don't have to write hashtag mouthwash show. Um, I am absolutely thrilled to uh, have an amazing cohort of brains joining me for season two. I've curated a bevy of smart cookies from Bloomberg's Brad Stone. He wrote the Jeff Bezos um uh, book that just came out, Beauty Stack, Charmaine Reed. We've got Thomas Weddle-Weddleberg up tomorrow. He's talking about reframing problems and that sort of stuff. We also have a Kung Fu master and an uncertainty expert slash pirate, Sam Conniff, all coming up this season as well. So make it sure uh, that you know what's going on. If you head over to mouthwashshow.com, there's full details, downloadable calendars, links to previous episodes, which are now podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Music, and where all other podcasts come from. Once again, my thanks to the phenomenal... Chris Messina. Um, please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji for him as the lo-fi music plays us out. Thank you for joining and thanks to the beautiful people over at Ecology for planting a tree for every one of you this season. Please tell a friend about Mouthwash. Uh, it doesn't happen without you. Um, I've been Paul Armstrong. This has been Mouthwash. Fresh chat that leaves you more confident only on Twitter spaces. So off you pop, brush your teeth and make sure you never start your day or finish your day without plenty of Mouthwash. Thanks ever so much, Chris. I'll speak soon. Love it. Thank <laughs> you.